Hello everybody, welcome back to Secrets of a Serial Killer. I'm your host, Nick. My mom is on vacation with my dad right now, and they will be coming back home today, but hopefully later on so I can get some peace and damn quiet. Because they've been gone for a week, and I've gone down there to spend time with them. But, you know, your boy needs to work on stuff. This podcast was supposed to come out two days ago, and it hasn't happened. But my mom will be back. All right, she will be back. So do not worry. And if there's a day where she decides she doesn't want to do the podcast anymore, I'll find another female. But I have to have one that has a personality, someone who actually can take a joke and have some humor. Especially dark humor, because I'm a mess. But before we get into that, I want to thank Podstatus for sending me this email. It really means a lot. I was not expecting it at all. So it says, Your podcast, Secrets of a Serial Killer, has good performance in the Apple Podcast ranking. Thank you to anybody who listens on Apple Podcasts. So position 22 in the category Documentary of Ireland. Position 125 in the category of Documentary in the Philippines. Position 223 in the category of Society and Culture, Ireland. So shout out to Ireland twice. Shout out to the Philippines. Shout out to everybody around the world that's been listening to this. It really means an honor because I'm just a broke 25-year-old boy that lives in my parents' house that needs to get his freaking life together, honestly. But happy 4th of July. That's a good sign. Well, I don't know if any other country is going to celebrate that because, you know, it's America's independence from Great Britain. So if you're British and you're listening to this, we still love you. Don't feel like just because I got my independence away from y'all asses don't mean anything. I mean, would you rather America still be a part of Great Britain? I mean, daggone, we're a hot mess. Great Britain's probably like, woo, I'm glad we got rid of them. You can have your independence. You stay over there on that side of the water. Y'all motherfuckers are too much. (laughs) So today we're going to be talking about Bobby Joe Long. And I don't know why I messed up on this other guy's name. It always gives me like a... uh, brain god i can't even say it see he's got me all screwed up and i think his name is david joseph carpenter i don't know why his name's that but oh well so we're going to start off with bobby joe long so bobby was born october 14th 1953 pretty much the same day my dad was born just a different year in camboa west virginia i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right c-a-n-a-b-o-a to parents of noel and joe he was born with two X chromosomes and a Y chromosome, and he actually had Klinefelter syndrome, or KS. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Medical terms always trip me up, to be honest. He was born with the extra X chromosome that can lead to long-lasting like mental and physical effects. People who actually suffer from KS develop smaller-than-average testicles, lower testosterone, and breasts when they hit puberty. They also have a higher learning disability and lack of control impulse. That learning disability, whew, I have that too, man. I don't even know how I made it out of school. I was like really bad in school. When he was two years old, his parents got divorced. Him and his mom moved to Florida, and they jumped from house to house, either living with relatives or in rental properties. So Noel waited tables, and Bobby was being watched by the landlord while she was at work. Bobby said that his mother wasn't a great mother. She didn't show him enough attention and was always distracted when they were spending time together. Before you push back on that comment and say, Well, Bobby, it's hard being a single mother and doing it all by yourself. Why working at a restaurant because you come in at different times and it's hard to spend time. They actually spent a day at the beach together. And while she was distracted looking at men and flirting with them and stuff, Bobby was drowning in the water and some local bystanders saved him. So what do you got to say about that one? 
1958, at five years old, he fell from a swing and was knocked unconscious. Damn, you got knocked the fuck out. <laughs> a stick went into his eye, but he luckily got to keep his eye. Boy, you're lucky, because that would have not have been my luck. My luck is so bad, that stick would have somehow hit one of my eyes and would have made my other one go out of luck. <laughs> like, my whole eye on my right side would have gone black if the stick went in my left eye. I mean, that's just how bad my luck is. They actually went back to West Virginia, and his parents started dating again. So in 1960, him and his mom moved back, and his parents once again got married. And around the time his parents' second wedding went, he was six, and he went headfirst from a bicycle into a parked car, knocking some teeth out and giving him a concussion. So this man's constantly hitting his head. <laughs> the following, he actually hit his head on the bumper of the back of a car, knocking him out and hospitalizing him. So yeah, from here on out, Bobby consistently got head trauma. He darted in traffic and got hit by a car and he nearly died. He survived with a deformed and badly messed up teeth. He fell from a pony and hit his head, leaving him dizzy and nauseous. He also fell while climbing a fence and he got stitches in his head. God, that's got to be painful. They sometimes say that enough head trauma can cause someone's personality to completely change or shift. Probably so. I wonder if he would have been a killer if he didn't have all these head traumas. I mean, I've had concussions when I was a kid, and it doesn't make me a killer, but I didn't have as many as he did. Like, good Lord. In 1963, his parents' marriage failed for the second time, and Noel and Bobby moved back to Florida. They moved into a house with Noel's cousins. Bobby and Noel had to share a bed together. Noel would actually bring random men into the bed with them. He was introduced to sex by his mother's one-night stands. Oh, God. Can we say his mother's a? Never mind. He would yell at her for her promiscuous behavior and proactivity out provocative outfits. I don't know why I said proactivity, but okay. He would scream in her face and even go as far as saying, I hate you. Noella started bartending and waitressing, and she was working two jobs. Bobby felt alone. I wonder like, what she was thinking when he was yelling in her face, calling her all these names and all that shit. Like, yeah, that is weird. Like, she's making herself out to be like a prostitute. If you want me to be honest, let's just keep it real. It's just sad. 1961, she saved up enough money for them to get their own place in Hialeah, Florida. H-I-A-L-E-A-H, if you're from Florida. Or if you know how to pronounce words, there you go. Even though they were... You know, there was space of his own. He still shared a bed with his mother. We don't know why. Even though he had his own space, he just felt comfortable sharing a space with his mother, I guess. She continued to bring home new men to spend the night. It was a full year before Bobby stopped sleeping in his mother's bed. What changed is he met a girl named Cindy Bartlett, and they were both 13 years old, and they became best friends. She had an instant attraction to Bobby. I bet you when he smiled, she was probably like, Oh, shit, his teeth are gone. Not long after they began dating, they grew closer, and she became protective over him, and he became protected over her. Bobby did have a short temper, though, and any boys disrespected him, they would end up in a fist fight. Other than that, he was pretty much a normal kid for the most part, they thought. Cindy said Bobby was a caring person. When Bobby hit puberty, his KS disease caused him to develop breast. When he would go swimming with friends, he would leave his shirt on. I mean, I wouldn't blame you, dude. 
He eventually got surgery to get it removed, but it was painful. Oh, I bet it was. In 1970, he dropped out of the 10th grade twice, and he was also expelled. He still screamed at his mother, and he frequently told Cindy he hates his mother. In 1972, the year my stepdad was born, 19-year-old Bobby enlisted into the Army. So, damn, he was 19 when my dad was born? Crap. He was only stationed an hour away from his mother, which wasn't far enough for him at all. He was trained as an electrician assistant. His first couple years, things were steady for Bobby. He got his GED, and he married Cindy in 1974, which is the year my mother was born. So, in March of 1974, which is literally actually a month after my mom was born... 21-year-old Bobby was riding his motorcycle down the streets near the base. He was a reckless driver, and he got into several tra- he got several traffic tickets in one day. Imagine being such bad of a driver that you got more than one traffic ticket in a day. Damn, those court fees are going up, boy. He was going super fast, and a car came out of nowhere, and it hit his bike, and he flew 100 feet away, and he was knocked unconscious. Surprised it didn't kill him. He was rushed to the hospital, and he had several severe injuries, a crushed leg, a broken shoulder, and he was in a coma for three days. Surprisingly, don't know why he didn't die or, you know, be bound to a wheelchair or something. Cindy said when Bobby woke up, he was a changed man. The happy boy she fell in love with was gone. He had a massive increase in his sexual desires. While he was in the hospital laying in a bed, a cast, Actually, laying in the bed, cast all up, the nurses noticed that Bobby masturbated five to six times a day. He couldn't even control it. Like, he's literally in a body cast and beating his wiener. Like, damn. His hypersexuality, which is a very rare side effect of head injuries in adults. Before the crash, Bobby and Cindy only had two to three times a week. After the crash, several times a day. Also, masturbating two to three times. So they would have sex only like two to three times a week, but now it's like several times a day, and then after he's done, then he goes beats his meat like two or three times after? God darn, Bobby. The hell. Surprised you can keep it up that long. Cindy said, I was forced to have sex with him a lot. Two months after Bobby came home, he also had extreme rage. That became a major problem that followed most incidents. Bobby began to beat Cindy, even over the smallest things like what she prepared for dinner. The next couple of years, she took the beatings but was confused on what happened to that happy little boy. She told herself every day Bobby's new personality was temporarily and any minute he'll go back to the old him. God, that has to be painful to tell yourself. In 1975, Cindy gave birth to a son and a daughter. Bobby couldn't hold down a job since the accident and they had financial troubles. So in 1977, 24-year-old Bobby got a career change. He enrolled at Brower Community College, where he studied to become an x-ray technician. He completed his studies, and of November of 1979, Parkway Regional Medical Center in Miami. But Sydney's abuse got worse. She took a severe beating in the summer of 1980. Bobby knocked Cindy unconscious, you know, landing her in the hospital. When she got home, she swore to put the end to the violence. When Bobby went to sleep... Cindy pulled out a double-barrel shotgun and pointed at Bobby as he was sleeping. For hours, she held the gun at her husband's head, but she couldn't do it. Bobby's alarm woke him up for work, and his eyes opened up. According to Cindy, he looked at her and looked at the gun. He calmly locked eyes with her, and he said, Go ahead. You don't have the guts. 
He was right. She couldn't do it. All night she thought about her two young children sleeping in the room nearby. Yeah, because, you know, you'll be locked up forever if you go ahead and kill the man. I mean, obviously, you'll end, you know, a, a street to your beating, and also you'll save a bunch of people's lives because he wouldn't be able to become a serial killer, but also that would damage your kids really badly, like knowing that you shot their dad, and they won't understand even as adults. And then on top of that, you know, yeah, just a lot of bullshit. A lot of shit that she couldn't risk. So, yeah. If she killed Bobby, then she'd go to prison, and the thought of never seeing her kids again paralyzed her. So on June of 1980, she divorced him and got full custody of the kids. That's what you're supposed to do. Perfect. She went a right way about it. Bobby only got limited visitation rights and was also ordered to pay child support. He moved to Tampa and settled in with some roommates. He would go through ads and see what the sellers were selling, and he would hope it was a good woman. He was careful to plan in the middle of the day. Husbands and boyfriends were less likely to be home, so he dressed into a press. So these women would put ads in the paper, and he would actually pretend to go see what they got. And if the husband or boyfriends weren't home, he would take advantage of these women. So he would actually go and play as a potential buyer, and he would follow the women into their homes. And if a man was home, he'd look at it and become less interested and leave. If they were home alone, he would retain the interest, and then he would rape her. On his way, he would actually take small valuables like jewelry when he would walk out the door. He felt overpowerful urges. If I don't do it or try to do it, I'll be fine for about a day or two. But if it wouldn't stop it, I wouldn't go on until I did it. So if he goes and does it, then he's good for about one or two days. But if he, like, fights it, then it won't go away until he does it. If I do it, I'll be good for about one or two or even three months, sometimes longer. Then it would hit again. He had no choice and he didn't care who it hurt. For years, women in different areas were attacked by the classified ad rapists. Estimated to be 50 women he raped, acting like a potential buyer. Surprised nobody stepped forward. That's wild. So in 1981, Bobby's roommate, Sharon Williams, accused Bobby of rape. Lack of evidence, the charges didn't stick. The same year, he got arrested for sending nude photos and letters to a 12-year-old girl. Six months of probation and less than 70 bucks to get out. Wow, it's much more than 70 bucks now. His attacks continued. So in April of 1984, a woman named Mary Hicks drove her car, which was a Jaguar, to a shopping center parking lot. She parked it far away to be less likely for it to get damaged. You know, you got a nice car like that. Motherfuckers want to always pull up on you. I can't stand when I pull out in the middle of nowhere and there's all these empty parking spots and you got that one asshole that still parks next to you. I can't stand it. She walked quickly into the store and got what she needed and walked out. As she was headed back to her car, she noticed someone standing nearby. She slowly took her steps and was being conscious of the man. He seemed to be staring at her car. She smiled. Most men liked her car and sometimes act like they knew more about her car than she did. She thought maybe the man needed a ride. Still, different time. People wouldn't do that now. After talking to him for a few minutes, she felt like he was harmless enough. Red flag, sweetheart. She agreed to take him for a drive. They pulled out of the parking lot, only driving for a few minutes, and then Bobby pulled a gun out from his coat and he pointed at her. When she saw it, she pulled the steering wheel hard and they ended up crashing into a telephone pole and she was dazed but she got away. 
He was arrested for aggravated assault, and he was actually a short distance away, but the gun that he had was never found. He got probation. Also paying for the damages to Mary's car. I was like, who actually had to pay for that? Insurance? No, his ass had to. So February, May 4th, no, Friday, May 4th, 1981, 31-year-old Bobby drove his red Dodge Magnum towards Tampa's Nebraska Avenue Strip. He spotted June T. Lana Long. I wonder if she's actually related to him. She was a dancer at the Sly Fox Lounge. (laughs) She stayed until closing, even helping people to other bars after she got off. Lena was working alone, and Bobby pulled up beside her. You need a ride? She accepted the offer. When she gave him directions to her house, he ignored them. He drove to a nearby wooded area. When he was sure they were alone, he pulled out a knife, reclining the passenger seat and forcing Lena to lay on her stomach. He demanded she get undressed and tie her hands behind her back. He drove off the road onto a dirt road. He sexually assaulted her, but not satisfied. He strangled her to death with the rope. He abandoned her body face down near a field. He left her naked with the arms tied being behind her back. And then once he got back into his car, he got back onto the road and he drove away. On his drive back to his apartment, he threw her clothes out the window. Undiscovered for nine days. On Mother's Day, 1984, two teens found her. The police had a lot of clues. Tire patterns, one tire was mismatched, a red fiber on her white scarf. It actually came from like the floorboard of the car. Later, the discovery was plattered all over the newspaper. Bobby said he didn't believe it until he seen it. It couldn't be possible he was suffering from... I mean, it could be possible that he's de- um, suffering from dissociative amnesia. But we don't know if he actually was or not. Also, the scarf was supposedly came from the car carpet, like I said. They were hoping to be able to use it for later. So May 6, 1984... He went back to Nebraska Avenue. The street was full of sex workers. It's pretty much the red light district, if you want me to be honest. He spotted 22-year-old Michelle Sims. He fell drawn to her. He pulled up beside her and rolled down the window. With a little talking, she got into his vehicle. The next day, a construction worker came across her naked body, hands tied behind her back and a rope around her neck. White pantyhose and a jumpsuit were hanging in the tree with blood all over them. The medical examiner evaluated the body, and three things have happened. Manual strangulation, blunt object to the head, and a deep gash on her throat. Michelle's death was brutal and incredibly violent, and investigators believe the two murders were linked. They they sent some of the evidence of Michelle's crime over to the FBI lab in Washington, D.C. They were actually connected, both red nylon carpet on both of the victims. The tires both match as well. The investigations, the investigators met up with the FBI profilers to make a psychology profile for the killer. They gave the profilers all the evidence they had, and they came back with their first profile ever. They said he was a white male, chooses his victims from outside of society. He was a high school dropout, having a hard time controlling his impulses. Likely he went to the military services, and it was a striking resemblance to Bobby. The killer was progressing and enjoying his kills. He showed signs of sexual sadism disorder, but he was never diagnosed for it. So Elizabeth Lying back 
Elizabeth Lyingback, who was 22 years old, was murdered on June 8th after accepting a ride home. She warned him when she got into the car, don't try anything. She wasn't a sex worker, but very was felt quiet and introverted. She worked as a sorter at an electronics factory. Neighbor said she kept to herself and read a lot. He tied her up, stripped her down, and drove to Orange Grove, and he raped her in the woods. Bobby told police later on that he had plans of letting her go. Something about her pissed him off. She wasn't dressed sexually or reminded him of his mother, so what was the problem? Her personality angered him, and he strangled her. He left her under the trees, and he drove away. He found her bank card and pen, and he withdrew cash several times. He threw... He threw the rest of her stuff out the door and it was pretty much scattered. This is the first time the victim's card was stolen, so they thought it was a different killer. Until the examiners found her and they found some more nylon red carpet strands. He was not killing for the next couple of days or months. Not sure if he wasn't getting triggered or he wasn't just laying low. So three months, no kills. Okay, so it was months. So on September of 1984, one evening, he left his apartment to get milk at a store. He planned on returning soon, so he left a TV dinner in the oven cooking. On the way home, a young woman caught his eye. The impulses to attack overcome him. Shalene Williams, only been out of jail for a few days, so until September 30th, 1984, he pulled up beside her and he said, You're not what I thought you were, a sex worker. The 18-year-old accepted a ride home anyways. Her body was found a week later on October 7th. His apartment was full of smoke due to the TV dinner. Also, like, did the milk go sour? Like, how long did you have to kill this woman? Like, didn't your milk go bad? Mm. She wasn't bound or strangled like the others that were sex workers. They thought not the same killer until some more nylon red carpet strands were found. Bobby was unaware that they were playing, paying close attention to his, excuse me, his attacks. So on October 13th, he picked up Karen Beth Disenfriend, Disfriend, I don't know. He tied her up and took her to Orange Grove, where he took his other victim and raped her in his car. He was going to dump her body out, but got spooked by the noises that were nearby. So he sat there quietly for some time, waiting for the sounds to disappear. When he felt safe, he wrapped her body up and put her into the trunk. He drove further to a different location and left her there. She grew up in actually Petersburg and had a history of drug abuse. She was working as a sex worker at the time of her death and she was found on North Nebraska Avenue seven hours after her death. Also, neon fibers were immediately found on her. They linked the five murders to the same killer. On his 31st birthday, Karen's body was found. On Halloween 1984, Kimberly Kyle Hops was found in a ditch on Halloween. So, different victim. Parallel to the U.S. Highway 301. Oh, God. If anybody that's not from the East Coast or live in any of these states, 301 is actually a highway that runs from Florida to Maine. And it is a pain in the ass. It's like every couple minutes there's like a light that's hitting you. I used to work at a restaurant that was on it. And you can only go like 55. So it's so weird why they call it a highway. But there's like so many houses and so many businesses on each side. I'm like, what the hell? 
So they got tired of 301, so they created 95 and 64 because those were much faster. So yeah, 301 does exist still. My boy drives on it every freaking day. <laughs> when he's going home or when he's going to the gym or going to work, they're right there by each other. So yeah, it's a pain in the ass. It really is. The fact is you get stopped every couple minutes and then you have to drive like 55. Like, that's crazy. It's too, too, too long if you ask me. So, huh. Police wanted to catch him badly. They felt responsible for each new murder. Bobby was getting sloppy. He felt invincible. He went years undetected as a rapist. Now that he's a killer, he was getting a little bit too cocky and sloppy. So on November 3rd, 1984, that's my boy's birthday, three days after his discovery of his sixth victim, he spotted 17-year-old Lisa McVeigh on her bicycle in Tampa at around 2 a.m. as she was cycling home from work at a Krispy Kreme factory. Oh my goodness. Shout out to Krispy Kreme. Y'all are delicious. Mm. Anybody doesn't know, Krispy Kreme was actually founded in North Carolina, where I'm from, so... I love me some Krispy Kreme. I wish we had one around here, but the closest one to me is like an hour and 15 minutes away. So, yeah. I live out in the middle of nowhere. But damn, it's good. Well, a co-worker offered her a ride home, but she nicely declined. See, if she would have taken this ride, her life would have changed. Wouldn't have probably changed at all. Not one bit. Not good or bad. As she was riding home, she passed the church, and the parking lot was mainly empty. But there was a car sitting there. But while she was passing by, she decided to get one more look at the car. While she was doing that, a large arm wrapped around her neck, and her feet didn't even touch the ground. She felt a barrel of a gun pointing at her head. She screamed as he drugged her to the car. Somehow nobody heard the screams. Wow. He tossed her in the passenger seat, and saw she saw a large hunting knife in the seat. And I'm like, oh yeah, she's about to get that shit. Before she could do anything... She was blindfolded. He ordered her to take off her clothes, and once naked, he raped her in her car. She kept saying loudly and repeatedly that she was going to show him a good time. Actually, that's what he was saying. He kept shouting at her, You're going to show me a good time. You're going to show me a good time. Well, if she did what he promised, he'd let her live. He wants to be in control. He wants to humiliate the woman and remind. He likes to humiliate the women that remind him of his mother. Okay, that's the thing. If you remind him of the mother, then he wants to fucking kill you. That's just it. Lisa felt calm on her way home. Actually, the reason why Lisa felt calm is because while she was riding her bike on the way home, she was plot contemplating on committing suicide. So it doesn't matter, like, it doesn't matter if Bobby was going to kill her, because if she didn't get killed by him, she was going to go home and do it herself. That's really crazy. She said she had a scary, lonely childhood, and at the age of five, she was removed from her family and placed into foster care. After nine years of bouncing around, you know, different homes, they finally sent her to her biological family at the age of 14, where she suffered three years of sexual abuse from her grandmother's boyfriend. Now she has an overwhelming feeling to now stay away. As he drove away from the church, she followed all his instructions. But she didn't know that she just got kidnapped by Bobby Joe Long. He ordered her to get out, and he followed her behind. She was counting 18 steps to his apartment. And when he opened the door, she smelt wet paint. She was on high alert, taking everything in. So if she does live, she can help the police out later. 
He took her to the bathroom and ran the water and started treating her like a girlfriend. He bathed her and told her that she was pretty. She asked him, Why are you doing this? He responded, Getting back at women. After she dried her hair, he pushed her to the ground and raped her. As a victim of physical and sexual abuse before, she decided not to fight back. She told Bobby she needed to use the toilet, but can't if he's standing there. Surprisingly, he stepped out of the bathroom and he closed the door behind him. She touched everything, determined to leave her fingerprints everywhere. After that, she was blindfolded and taken to a bedroom. He laid her on the bed and told her to get some rest. He touched her with the gun to remind her that he was armed. He got into the bed and fell asleep. She laid in the bed for hours, not sure if the snores were real or fake, too scared to move. He woke up and assaulted her again. He even took her hands and rubbed them on his face. What kind of weirdo are you? You got a hand fetish or something, my guy? She felt that he had porcelain skin, mustache, small ears. She tried to figure out as much information on his facial features as she could, because she's still blindfolded, y'all. He asked her questions about her family, showing affection towards her. She kept him calm, even answering all his questions. After 26 hours had gone by, he asked her a question she never thought she was going to hear. What am I going to do with you? She was surprised. Didn't know what to say. And then he asked her again. What am I going to do with you? She offered to be his girlfriend, saying that she'd take care of him and not tell anyone how they met. She just wanted to appease her attacker. He denied the offer. Yeah, my boy ain't no simp. He ordered her to get dressed, and they went back downstairs. They got into the car, and he asked her where she lived. He was going to drop her off at the house. Even if your killer says, just drop off like down the street or something. Be like, yeah, that's my fucking house. Even though that ain't your house at all. You know what I'm saying? So, along the drive, he stopped the car and got out. Too scared to run, she stayed in the car. Peeking through the blindfold, he was using an ATM nearby. She memorized the nearby landmarks. They drove some more, and he stepped out again. He hugged her and apologized for what he had done and what she had gone through. She got out of the car and heard it drive away. She took off the blindfold, and when she realized he was nowhere to be found, she took off running through the neighborhood. Every time she heard a car, she thought that he changed his mind and he was coming back for her. Eventually, she reached a police station. She told the officers everything about her situation. She was able to give them all the details that she could. She even included what he was driving, a red Dodge Magnum. Little details stood out about the mixed-matched tires and the fiber from Lisa's clothing returned from the lab. It was a match. So on November 6, 1984, 18-year-old Virginia Johnson was found strangled to death. Her body was ravaged by animals. On November 12th, a woman's body was found on an overpass. Her license in her pocket told police that she was 21-year-old Kimberly Marie Swan. Kim was last seen on November 9th. She was strangled to death and her legs were spread wide apart. November 14th, a joint task force was pretty much announced to the public. Pasico County, the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Department, Florida Department of Law Enforcement, and the FBI all joined together hoping that... All of them together could bring him down. The very next day, the police caught a lucky break. November 15, 1984, Bobby was pulled over by police. They noticed that his car, including the tires, matched the same description that was printed out at the police station. Officer says that they were responding to a nearby robbery, which wasn't true. 
There was no reason to arrest him, so they photographed him instead. They had no choice but to watch him drive away. In a photo lineup, Lisa pointed out Bobby Joe Long is the man who kidnapped her. November 16th, he was arrested for kidnapping and sexual assault. Brought him into the interrogation room, he quickly confessed to the kidnapping of Lisa, but he denied about knowing anything about the murders. They put the physical evidence linking him to the crimes in front of him. He asked the interrogators what they wanted to know. He told them about the interactions of how he would interact with them, take them along, kill them, and where he dumped the bodies at. After going through all that, they asked him if he knew a woman named Vicki Elliott. Vicki, which was a 21-year-old waitress, went missing two months ago. Showing her photo to him, he admitted to killing her. He told them where the body could be found, and it was located that same day. After all that, he wanted to make a phone call. He called his ex-wife, Cindy. She was surprised to hear from him since they spoke the night before. He warned her, you can never be too careful with serial killers on the loose in Tampa. She was shocked when he told her that he was responsible for all the killings. He was an abusive asshole, but she never suspected him to be capable of murder. Well, Cindy, you should have thought that one through. I mean, you almost committed murder on him, so... I mean, if you almost killed him, you should know that he has the capability of killing. Confessions on tapes, he appeared in the court the next day. He was charged for nine women's murders. More bodies did turn up within the two weeks and months, but they were suspected to be Bobby's. While awaiting trial, he met with forensic psychologist Robert Berlin. At trial, he said that Bobby was psychotic and diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder. He was sentenced to four 99-year terms in prison, plus 28 life sentences. On May of 1985, a year before his spree began, he was sentenced to death for the murder of Virginia Johnson. He sat on death row for early 30 years. Over 30 years! Longer than any of his victims were alive. Damn! So on May 23, 2019, 65-year-old Bobby Joe Long, he was executed by lethal ejection. Sitting in the front row of the victim's chamber was Lisa. She vowed to protect the people of her community. So in 2005, she earned her badge as the Hillsborough Sheriff's Department Deputy. Hell yeah. So now she's a cop, y'all. So everybody give her a round of applause. So Bobby got lethal injection. And she became a cop. That's so crazy because if she would have taken that ride with the co-worker home, she'd probably still be working at that factory. And if Bobby would have not let her go, she'd be dead. But if Bobby didn't snatch her up, she probably would have killed herself. So who knew Bobby kidnapping her and letting her live, would she turn around and do something with her life and also become a cop? Like, damn, that's just crazy how your life can go. That is really crazy. How you go from Krispy Kreme factory to a cop? Like, that's amazing. I'm proud of her. I'm glad for her. I wonder if she's still a cop to this day. So here's some of the secrets or things you may not know. So there was actually a movie released in 2018 called Believe Me, The Abduction of Lisa McVeigh. Um, there also is Season 1, Episode 5, Killing Spree. On the FBI Files, they actually talk about it. And also on the show Forensic Files, Season 2, Episode 1, is called The Common Thread. 
I guess that's also talking about it. Each one of these are pretty much talking about this guy right here. I Survived, Season 2, Episode 7. I Escaped My Killer, Season 1, Episode 1, which is Crime and Investigation Network. Killer Doctors on Death Row, which is CBS Reality. Evil Lives Here, Season 3, Episode 2. The Monster I Married, Investigation Discovery. What's the Most Evil Killers, The Classified Ad Rapist, Bobby Joe Long, Reels. And also on the case with Paula Zan, Season 6, Episode 5, Hanging by a Thread. Investigation Discovery, which is the ID channel, if you didn't know that. Well, Bobby... Before he died, he ate his final meal at 9.30 a.m. He requested bacon, french fries, and a soda. He was pronounced dead at 7 o'clock p.m. with no last statement. So he, when they asked him any final words, he just had nothing to say. So they were just like, duh. <laughs> so that's pretty much the end of the story of Bobby Joe Long. Sorry, I kind of butchered it and kind of seemed a little fast, and you might have... Got lost a little bit, but you might have to go back and listen to that. Today is not my day. My mind is everywhere. So we're going to be talking about David Joseph Carpenter. So David was born May 6, 1930. He was a shy, introverted kid. He had an unstable home life. His father was an abusive alcoholic. He was barely around, but when he did come home, he'd verbally and physically beat his son. The mother, on the other hand... She was a hard dictator and controlled everything in his life. She'd enrolled in him when it came to music and ballet classes, even if he didn't want to. The classes made him feel ashamed, humiliated, not manly, and a laughing stock. He had a bad stutter, and he wrestled with a speech impediment. Could be possible that his stutter came from the abuse of his parents, but we would never know. Therapists think that his abusing animals and bedwetting is linked to psychopathy. At 14, he committed his first sexual abuse crime. He was just a juvenile, and the courts actually expunged it off of his record. His crimes were so dramatic that he went and got committed to Napa State Hospital. Some of his rage was due to wanting sex, but his stutter made it hard for him to meet girls. Not sure when he was released from the hospital, but when he was, his abuse desires continued. In 1947, when he was 17 years old, he was sentenced to the Youth Authority after molesting two of his cousins. One was an eight-year-old, and the other one was a three-year-old. Way to keep it in the family, Alabama. Yeehaw! <laughs> he was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, the same as Bobby Joe Long. He stayed in the California Youth Authority until he was released. Fall of 1955, the 25-year-old married a woman named Ellen Hiller. Hmm, I'm 25 too. The next several years, they had three children together. No one knew for sure about their marriage, but some say it was far from comfortable. His sex drive didn't go away, it just gotten worse. His wife said that he demanded sex three times a night. Hey, it's better than Bobby. That Bobby boy over here, he's like, yeah, I'm doing it five, six times a day, baby, plus two or three masturbating sessions after that. Ooh. So, girl, how do you think Bobby Joe Long's wife feels? <laughs> to his friends and neighbors, he was just a normal guy. He got a job at an advertisement agency, but he hid his darkest tendencies. So mid-1960s, he couldn't keep his abusive urges to himself. He targeted one of his co-workers, Lois John Garage. He kidnapped her and took her to a military-based neighborhood. It has another name for it, but I just don't know how to pronounce it. It's actually an active military base, 
and a guard saw Carpenter speeding through the neighborhood. He quietly trailed the couple slowly out of sight. When they got to where he wanted to be at, he tossed her to the ground and took a clothesline and bonded her hands together. He stabbed her a few times and bashed her head in with a clawed hammer. When Hicks heard her screams, he sprang into action. That was the guy's name. He yelled for him to stop and Carpenter pulled a pistol out of his back pocket and shot at Hicks. Luckily he missed and Hicks shot back at him, hitting him twice, once in the leg and the other one in the abdomen. He fell to the ground. She was rushed to the hospital and after five hours of emergency surgery, she survived. So in late 1960s, he was tried for the attack. He was sentenced to 14 years in prison. His wife divorced him. His normal life just fell apart. He handled prison very well, though. He was considered a model prisoner. He was so good that he was released in 1969, only serving seven and a half years out of his original sentence. He still had seven years to go. Wow. Once he got out, he got arrested for kidnapping, attempted rape, and theft. He spent another nine years behind bars. Well, he actually spent a little bit longer now that he got that nine. <laughs> From 1970 to 1979, he was released on good behavior and released to a halfway house, which, you know, he still was being monitored a little bit. His darkest urges got worse while he was in prison. The morning of August 19, 1979, he left the halfway house and drove to Marion County. The area is very popular for trail hiking and scenic views. He spotted 44-year-old Etta Kane. She was hitting the trails. Etta was a bank banking executive and an avid hiker. Most of the time, she explored with friends, but on this day, she was alone. Man, you should have called your friends. At least a male friend. One or two of them would have helped out. She parked her car at the base of the trail and began to walk through Mount Tolopus. I, I don't know how to say this fucking thing. Why did people come up with these names that I can't pronounce? T-A-M-A-L-P-I-P-A-I-S. I don't know. Fuck that place. Also known as the Sleeping Lady. Oh, that's a weird thing to call it, but okay. It was known for its scenic trails overlooking the Golden Gate Bridge. That sounds pretty cool, though. Etta was gone for hours, and the sun went down, and her husband was getting worried. He had lorded authorities, and they went to the trails with the canine just to make sure Edna didn't get off the path by accident. No clues of her whereabouts were found, but her car was still sitting, sitting there. Damn, I'm stuttering too. They resumed the search the next day, and they found Edda's nude body laying half a mile off the trail. She was shot in the back of the head with the forty-four caliber gun. Most of her stuff was missing. Her jewelry was left behind. Yeah, because that shit was probably fake. She was nude, but not sexually assaulted. She was found kneeling, perhaps executioner style. Ooh. Made to beg for her life before being killed. They thoroughly searched the location and even talked to locals, but came up with nothing. The case went cold until another one happened a couple of months later. Barbara, Barbara Swartz? She was 23, decided to take a walk through them, walk through some trails. She brought her dog along for safety. Sometime in there, she was approached by a white man with a bald cap and a warm smile. He stopped her for ask her a question, but they ended up talking for a while. In the middle of the conversation, he pulled out a 10-inch bowie knife 
in the middle of broad daylight, and he started stabbing Barbara repeatedly in the chest, spraying the dirt with her blood. A witness nearby saw it all and screamed for him to stop. She ran to get help, leading the park rangers to the site. They found her naked in a kneeling position like Edna Kane. Investigators searched the scene, still come up with nothing. The witness was so terrified she couldn't even describe Carpenter accurately. The case went cold. All they had was blood-splattered bifocals that were left at the scene. The glasses were prison-issued, but after they did their research, it still came up empty-handed. Stupid asses. The sheriff brought a psychologist in, R. William Mattis. He examined the case and hypothesized. He came back saying that all of this was probably like the killings were pretty much like a souvenir to him. Like this guy's killing and making this shit a souvenir. Even with that knowledge, they didn't have like strong suspects to go off of. So next, Ann Alterson, who was 26, well, you're older than me, disappeared while jogging on the trail. She was found a few days later shot in the head and sexually assaulted. A panic came through the community. A serial murderer was on the loose, and they called him in the press the Trail Side Killer. So November of 1980, Point Reyes National Seashore Park. Ugh. On that trail was also Shauna May, who was 25 years old. Hopefully I'm saying these names right. If I'm not, I don't really give a damn. Who planned to meet up with her friends on the opposite side of the trail when she never showed up. Her friends called the police. They did a two-day search and found four bodies a mile from the trail. Like, damn, this man's been busy. Most of the time, it's like maybe one or two. But damn, this dude was like four? Sheesh. The first one was Shauna May. She was stripped naked and shot in the head. Beside her lay 22-year-old Diane O'Connell. I'm sorry if I'm butchering these names. She has been missing for a month. She was sexually assaulted, strangled, and shot several times. She must have fought back. That's all I can think of to be doing through all that. They laid side by side in a shadow grave. A little bit further down the path, there were two other bodies that were discovered that belonged to Richard Swoners and Cynthia Moreland. I don't know if I pronounced them right. They'd both been missing since the middle of October. Both of them were shot in the head. They laid face down under some brush. They were for sure that they had a serial killer on their hands. The trails were left deserted. People were too afraid to go out and walk them. All the bullets that were used for the same victims before were used on this victims too. They monitored all the trails around the city, and helicopters did fly over searches for clues. It even got as bad as Marines offering to protect the trails. Some police even took their horsebacks to patrol. Not much happened, but the community felt safe enough to go hiking again. Like, what? Even with all this going on, y'all still feel safe enough to go hiking? It makes no sense. On their spring break from UC Davis, Ellen Marie Hans? No, Hansen? Sorry. Ellen Marie Hansen, who was 20 years old, and her boyfriend decided to go camping in Henry Cowell Redwood State Park. Woo! Finally got one right. Of March 29th, 1981. After spending the night, they took a hike up to the observation tower. A man hidden in the trees approached them, and in his hand was a small gun. He approached them calmly. He spoke to them in a quick, low-toned voice. He told Stephen, which is her boyfriend, he was going to sexually assault Ellen. He warned if Stephen refused that there'd be fatal consequences. 
They didn't know how to react until he showed them his handgun, and they knew he was serious. Stephen begged for them to be let go. His girlfriend knew he wasn't going to budge. Ellen stepped forward face to face with the man, and she said, He's going to kill us anyways. He raised the pistol up to Ellen's head and shot her point blank in the head twice. Stephen tried to run, but when he did, he wasn't fast enough, and Carpenter shot him twice. Then he fleed the scene. He was getting sloppy. Multiple witnesses saw him that day from the tower. Well, the observation tower, a few of them reported a suspicious man running out of the park. <laughs> There's people in the observation tower. How the fuck did they not hear the talking or hear the gunshots? That makes no sense. He shot four times. How did they not hear that shit? Like, how far was the observation place from where they were standing? That makes no sense at all. Also, what kind of damn dog did that lady have that it didn't even attack him? Yeah, I'm going to use this dog for protection. Gets stabbed like multiple times. The dog does, does nothing. I wonder whatever happened to the dog. Hmm, that makes no sense. Also, homeboy shouldn't even have tried to, like, run. When he, like, showed me the gun, I would have tackled his ass. Like, we would have been fighting. I would have been fighting for my life. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Like, me and my girlfriend, we're going to be beating this dude's ass. Like, there's no way that you're just going to take me down like that. Like, come on now. Especially an 18 and 19-year-old. Come on, man. Like, fight for your lives, damn it. Shit. <laughs> After that, they described him perfectly to the police. A 10-year-old girl actually saw him running to his car. She grabbed a piece of cardboard and sketched what was going on at that moment. Like, this girl was a sketch artist. Man, I wonder if she's, is she the one that sketched out the Zodiac? Well, <laughs> uh, she found out it was a man escaping in a small, foxy red car. The last piece of evidence was damning the carpenter. After being rushed to the hospital, Stephen survived. Post-surgery, he wasn't able to speak. Yeah, because I was looking at the uh, uh, people that he killed to try to be able to pronounce their names, and his name wasn't on the list. So I was hella confused about that one. Sorry, somebody with a weird number texted me. Post-surgery, he wasn't able to speak, and the police sketched out and did other things for him to look at, and it matched up the details of what the other witnesses had said as well. He wore a ball cap, glasses, and had a slender build. Wow, if he was skinny, I should have been able to take him down no time flat. Whatever. The sketch was released to the public and released to several newspapers. Immediately, they received an anonymous tip from a hotline. A local woman recognized this sketch, and she told the police his name was David Carpenter. She met him seven years prior on a cruise ship. She noticed that his stutter was really bad, and he made awkward advancements to her and her daughter. Only problem is, there were several David Carpenters that lived in the San Francisco area. It narrowed it down some but it still wasn't enough. They were hoping someone with more information might give them a tip. Locals weren't the only ones that were reading the newspapers. So was Carpenter. He was growing anxious. He grew his beard and tried to change his appearance as much as he could. He was hoping his new stable life would help him avoid suspicion. He was now working in a warehouse, but living with his parents. God forbid. As a registered sex offender, it was hard for him to find a job, but the warehouse, they gave him one anyways. Uh, leave it to the warehouses to do it. But being in a warehouse full of men didn't stop his dark desires. He turned his attention to a print shop next door owned by the same company. Several women worked there. Heather Skaggs? 
Heather Roxanne Skaggs, which was 20 years old, worked there. She was a high schooler that just graduated. It was a need for a car. May 1st, 1981. He approached her. She was a young and kind young lady. Well, can't really find those nowadays. <laughs> he felt drawn to her. He claimed to hear about her car shopping and knew a bargain not too far from there. He offered to drive her over there to take a look at the vehicle. In their conversation, he hinted at her going alone. Also, keep the car and the person she was going with a secret. She accepted the offer and the two left. What an idiot. I'm sorry. What in the world? Like, this man literally gave you the two hints that you needed to know that this was a red flag and you still did it. She didn't blindly trust him and she told her boyfriend and he was suspicious about him. After all... Oh my goodness. Listen to this crap. So he pretty much knew that he was an older creepy co-worker. And he told her if she failed to come back at 7, he would report her missing to the police. What kind of boyfriend are you, my guy? Like, you deserve to get slapped in the face. Like, I should backhand your dumb ass. Why would you do that? Why would you let your girlfriend go with a creepy guy? Like, who cares about that car? She didn't even get to drive a car because she's dead now because you two made a stupid decision. Even if you didn't know he was a serial killer, you worked with him and you knew he was a creep. Come on now. And she even hinted, he hinted at her like, don't tell anybody that you're with me or where you're going. You know what I'm saying? Like, people are just so stupid. When Seven came, he frantically called the police. They began their investigation swiftly. The co-workers and the boyfriends were, uh, the co-workers and the boyfriend were quickly to point out who did it. So by 1981, 51-year-old David Joseph Carpenter murdered 10 people. When police showed up at his residence, they couldn't help but to grow more suspicious. When he opened the door, the officer realized he looked just like the sketch. And his name matched the name that the lady gave on the hotline. The last piece of evidence was right in front of them. The red foxy Fiat. Good job, little 10-year-old. It looked identical to the 10-year-old witness's description. I'm proud of you, girl. High five. <laughs> they spoke to his parole officer, and even he said he very well could be a suspect in Heather's disappearance. They went back to the files and realized that his name was accidentally left out on the trailside killer's cases. Dumbasses. They took him to the station and questioned him about his relationship with Heather. He refused to answer. When pressed, his stutter was so bad he couldn't speak at all. The interrogation continued for hours. When they started talking about his childhood and his background, he became very bitter. He mentioned the dancing classes that he was forced to take as a child. Another investigator said that he took dance when he was young. He got up and went to the middle of the floor and started dancing and have Carpenter call out the moves. Tell me that's not uh, creepy as hell, okay? I'd have been like, uh, deputy, what are you doing? What, what, this is no time for dancing. Who gives a shit if both of y'all had dancing? Like, who cares? He would avoid certain things and would lie. He definitely lied about his whereabouts the day of the murders. Obviously, doesn't want to get caught. He says, I pray to God nobody finds her body and knows that she was raped. That's what he eventually came out and said. They were itching so bad to make an arrest, but they let him go for a week. But they were surveillancing him and his every move. After a week... When there was no new clues coming up, they decided to make the arrest. They surrounded his home with guns drawn, ready for him to resist. 
When an officer knocked on the door and explained that he was under arrest, he applied and came out quietly. Not too long after, some hikers came across Heather's body. She was discovered in a shallow grave with dirt and leaves all over her. She had been assaulted and shot in the back of the head. And pretty much raped, so that's sad. They put David in a lineup and had Stephen point him out, and he was the man that was responsible. He confirmed that it was Carpenter. In the courtroom at first, Carpenter showed no emotion at all. The judge asked him if this was his name, and his face changed, and he turned away and he stuttered so badly. It took a couple of seconds, but then he was able to answer yes. May 18, 1988, 58-year-old was convicted of the murders and two counts of rape and one count of attempted rape. He was placed on death row, and he's 92 years old now. Yes, he is still alive. Some things you may not know about this guy is he used a 38 caliber handgun in all the killings except for one, Edna Kane. She was killed with the 44 caliber handgun, if you remember that. Also, the trailside killings provided the context for Joyce Maynard's 2013 novel, After Her. So she took some inspiration after that. On television, both The New Detectives and Born to Kill made an episode about the case. So, yeah, that's pretty interesting. It really is. My thing is, what happened to that dog? Like, why didn't the dog, like, jump and protect her? That made no sense at all. Like, I understand, like, you're getting stabbed over, but the dog didn't even try to fight. That made no <sighs> freaking sense. And obviously, like, I understand 18, 19-year-olds are, like, impressionable. They're not very mature. But you guys knew this guy was suspicious. Like, you didn't trust him. The girl didn't trust him, and the boyfriend didn't trust him. But why would you let him leave with her in the first place? I don't care how badly you need a damn car. You, you know, your life is more important than a damn car. That's what bothers me about people. Some of these people are so stupid. And who the hell dropped the ball when this man was in prison? Oh, yeah, he's only served seven years, even though he's supposed to serve 14. Let's let him out on good behavior. And then he does it again. He's a repeat offender. Quite a few times he's repeated it. And he's still on death row. Like, how long does this man have to sit on death row? He's going to die from natural causes before y'all even have a chance to freaking kill him yourselves. Like, even Bobby Joe Long freaking got the lethal ejection before this guy did. Like, this man's been around since 1930. Bro, he's been around a lot longer than freaking Bobby Joe Long. And Bobby Joe Long got it before him. <laughs> that makes no sense. These, these places are crazy, man. Like, I'm not the biggest, biggest fan of death row, like, killing people, but when it comes to doing bad things to people like that, uh, it's kind of like an eye for an eye, if you want me to be honest. So, where I got these resources from were Wikipedia and uh, Serial Killers Podcast. Uh, they've been very helpful with this information. You know, it's really amazing what you can find on the internet. It really is. Um, it's just, it's crazy. It's just really crazy, the life that we live in. And it's crazy how these people can actually have kids. That makes any sense at all? No. Because it's just crazy how these sickos can have families and shit. And they're like batshit crazy. I think the only people that didn't have like kids is like Dahmer, Gein, and all those other people. But um, sorry, I was kind of reading a little bit fast. And I've been a little bit sloppy. You know, I was trying to get things done. I know next week it's going to be a little bit better, but, you know, it is what it is. 
you know, I'm going to be working on it for the rest of the week. So I love you guys. Hopefully mom will be back this Saturday so we can talk about the killers that I want to talk about. I love you guys, and I will catch you in the next episode. Stay safe and lock your doors.